0: Welcome to the Central Baptist Church podcast. Located in the heart of Victoria, B.C., we are a church that seeks to renew our community through the gospel. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. The scripture reading for today is Luke chapter 6, verses 20 to 26. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Well, thank you, Kate, and uh,
0: good morning, everyone.
1: Good to be with you this morning, and uh, I trust that you're here in anticipation of this whole morning, whether it's... We, whether it's worshipping through music, whether it's worshipping through prayer, whether it's worshipping as we spend time together in God's Word, that uh, you would be both encouraged, encouraged by the fact that the Holy Spirit is is working on you, that God cares about you, that He's trying to communicate to you, um, but also challenged that uh, we still have more to go, and we can still reflect Jesus better. And there's still some areas of our lives to work on. So welcome again this morning to you who are here and to you who are uh, uh, there online. Uh, it's great to be together. So how did it go last week? Um, uh, did you think through some of the ways that maybe this year, 2022, you could become a little bit poor? Did you talk to anybody about how maybe this year you could be a little bit hungrier. This time of year, of course, all of us go through these greeting times, or we think through, well, here's a new year, what's this year going to hold? Especially, you know, this year is like the last couple years have been unique in that, while it's in addition to all of our own issues that we're facing, we've got this kind of global issue that we're facing together. So our challenges are are interesting. And yet, we all always still, or or many of us do, will greet each other with something like Happy New Year. And we do so because we genuinely are wishing a person to have a Happy New Year. You know, all of us want that, I'm sure. All of us want that for our loved ones. All of us want that for ourselves. If you and I... uh, claim to follow Jesus, right, of course, then our initial step forward, our initial kind of look into what this might be about ought to be with Christ, ought to be with Jesus, right? And, and surprise, surprise, as we learned last week, Jesus has something to say about what makes the human being happy, um, He provides us insight, and we read, Kate just read it again, we read Luke's version, it it actually shows up a couple times in Scripture, in the Bible, in Matthew, as well as Luke, that there are certain things in this life, there are certain kind of states of being, or states of existence, choices that we can make, as followers of Jesus, that help us, that have the the, uh, benefit of helping us to become happy. And that in addition to this, these are things that God, in fact, blesses. And so we, we looked at them, right? And, and so remember, we'll, we'll just quickly look at them again. What are the four states? Poverty, hunger, weeping, and being hated, right? I mean, it's not a stretch. Each of these things, for most of us, if not all of us, are disturbing. Because they seem to go against the very thing that we want for our lives, and the very, thing that, the very messages that we're often told, as we go about our daily life, right? Most of us are, are told, and frankly, probably most of us want to have more money, to uh, spend more, to have more things, right? More, more, more. Those—that's our, our uh, seems to be our default orientation. And yet here's Jesus stopping us for a second, right? Because you imagine, right, in Luke's version, he's stepping into kind of a, um, an open space and he's looking up uh, at the kind of the hills just surrounding him and he's seeing all of his disciples and he's saying, you people, you people who are following me, I-, I want you to know from the depth of my heart what matters, what should matter. And then he lists these things. You will be blessed. You will be happy if you're poor, if you're hungry, if you're weeping, if you're... Being hated, Um, but keep in mind that Jesus—I don't think Jesus is saying this just to be simply contrarian, right? Just to sort of be shocking. He's saying this with a larger context in mind, right? We looked at a couple of those things last week, and I'll just summarize them them again, right? The first thing is that just like we celebrated a few weeks ago, we are in the midst of of an advent, our own advent. Right? We recreated and we celebrated the, the, the first advent when we celebrated Jesus' birth in, in, uh, in the stable and in Bethlehem and, and the whole story that goes around that. But that waiting is over, right? He's, the baby's been born and we can celebrate that and so we did. But now we're in a period of time where we are waiting once again. And in fact, in this case, we are waiting for these words of the uh, angel to, uh, to come true. Here, here's it says, this Jesus who's been taking up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So this is what we're waiting for now. This is our advent. We're right in the middle of it. Well, I mean, not I don't know about literally in the middle, but we're kind of in the throes of it. We're, we're, this is part of our existence. We're waiting for him to come again. In addition to this waiting period, uh, It's not that God is not working during this time. God is definitely at work, and he's certainly at work. Um, And that brings us to the second part of this larger narrative to put into context Jesus' disturbing recommendations for us. God is preparing us for the final revelation of his kingdom. And remember what is at the heart of God's preparation process? It's this, his once and for all plan to make us people, make us his people, and to be our God. That's what God is doing. That's sort of at the heart. That's the kind of the heartbeat of this kind of, this move to God's rule when Jesus will come again and reveal to us the final kind of completion, the final revelation of his kingdom, of his rule. And so we wait. Um, and, and sometimes it's difficult to imagine, but I, I was reading uh, this last week a, a, an article by, uh, about Bishop Desmond Tutu, who you might have known died this past Boxing Day. And one of the questions that he was asked, this interview was a, f- a few years ago, was, what do you think heaven is like? And this is kind of what he said. I thought it was quite profound. Because remember, the reason I'm, I'm talking about this is to give us this sense of vision, this sense of joy, this coming joy, this hope that you and I as followers of Jesus have uh, as, as part of our existence. Not just that we're waiting, but we're waiting in anticipation of a great joy, a great uh, uh, coming together, a great revelation of, of who God meant us to be. And so he puts it like this. I thought this was, was quite good. He's talking specifically about heaven, but it works with the kingdom of God as well, the the rule of God. It will be spatially, temporally different, of course. Uh, Says uh, Tutu, it is difficult for us to conceive an existence that is timeless, where you look at absolute beauty and goodness, and you have no words. It is enough just to be there. You know how it is when you're sitting with someone you love, and hours can go by in what seem like moments. Well, in the kingdom of God, etern- eternity itself will pass, pass in a flash. In the kingdom, we will never tire. We will never be bored because there will always be such new sides of God that will be revealed to us. Just a glimpse and just, just an attempt, just kind of a grasping to see what might this be like. And many of these illustrations, many of these kind of ideas come, come out of Scripture. But this is what we're waiting for. This is the context in which Jesus then says, with this in mind, the fact that there's, gonna, there's a waiting period and we're waiting for the kingdom. With this in mind, the best way to go through this time as followers of Jesus is once again in poverty, hunger, weeping, and being hated. So, what might our response be if we're interested, if we're curious, if we're wondering how this might look in our lives? Well, we might say something like this I resolve this year to be poor. I resolve to be hungrier this year. I resolve to weep more this year. I resolve to be hated more this year. So, I've looked at these four things and I've divided them into basically two groups. The first two, which we took a peek at last week, are basically resolutions for for my life, for for your life, right? So the things in your life over which we have responsibility, right? Things like our finances, our possessions, our time, our energy. These are the sorts of things, our orientation towards this stuff is what I think Jesus is addressing in the first two. So what did we learn? Let's just quickly do a, a quick summary, So the first one is uh, the disturbed resolutions for my life, right? First one's poverty. But remember, keep in mind that biblical poverty is premised on two things. First one, the poor are front and center to God. God sees the poor and wants them to know, us to know, the good news that the kingdom of God is theirs. Now the reason I think that the poor are so important to God is because they're in a position... To already know they need help. This is at the heart of biblical poverty. However, as I pointed out last week, it's not a question of possessions. Right? So that leads us to the second point. Money itself is not the issue. Not only is the poor front and center, not only are the poor front and center, but money itself isn't the issue uh, in terms of biblical poverty. Uh, It's possible that, or sorry, the the movement of the follower of Jesus in relation to these things, and like I said, by things I mean like our finances uh, and everything related to that, right? Our possessions, our time, and our energy. The idea of biblical poverty and the fact that money isn't the issue is because the inclination, the desire, the teaching of Scripture is, is about the movement from seeing these things for us in our lives as possessions, the movement away from seeing these things as possessions to seeing these things as resources. Or to use some more maybe biblical accurate language, the move from viewing ourselves or viewing our things uh, from the perspective as, as an owner, these are mine, to the perspective being a steward. I have been given these things to use for, uh, on, on purpose. The difference is a matter of thinking, that our things are ours to use for ourselves to the perspective of faith that acknowledges that none of the things that we have are coming with us when we die. We, we believe that. And, and uh, everything in our possession we have by the sovereign grace of God, therefore nothing that we have is, is our own but God's and to be used for his good purpose and good pleasure. So the application of this resolution could take two forms. It could be material. It could be that God is kind of poking at you. The Holy Spirit is kind of convicting you, prodding you, uh, us to, to, to loosen our grip on our wealth or the pursuit of wealth. Whether you feel like you're rich or whether you feel like, po- like you're poor, the pursuit of wealth, it might be inhibiting our relationship to God. If so, remember, keeping in mind the joy that awaits us under the rule of God, it may be necessary this year to start to loosen our grip a little bit on our wealth. And I, again, like I said last week, I say it only a bit at this point, because for most of us, God generally works, from my experience, step by step with us. In, in fact, only once in Scripture, as far as I could tell... Does Jesus ever say to somebody, in particular, a specific person, you need to sell all you have and give to the poor? In other situations, there was... A, a sort of a fractional response, right? I, I mentioned Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is a is a great example, right? He he has Jesus over to his house and he interacts with Jesus and, and he then he responds to Jesus and he's so overwhelmed and he's so convicted and he so uh, enjoys the 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 presence of Jesus and his life and his message that he says, you know what? I I feel convicted about how I've been hoarding my wealth, how I've been gathering wealth, and so I'm just gonna I'm gonna give half to the poor. And, and what is Jesus' response to Zacchaeus, right? He says to those around him, salvation, today salvation has come to this house. So there's, there's, a, there's differences. God works in our lives in, in, in different ways. Our responsibility is to be sensitive to God's spirit. But there's another way this year to become poor. And we see this possi- possibility in Matthew's version of the same message, right? The Beatitudes. In Matthew 5, 3, we read, blessed or happy are the poor in spirit. Again, what does it mean to be poor in spirit? Well, I, I've touched on this already. It means at the very heart we recognize something. At the very, um, you know, when it's just us, when we're kind of in that quiet space in, in our own life, when we're not distracted by anything else, when we have those quiet moments, we realize something. We realize we need help from God. And we realize that we need help from God, not just once, but every day, every moment of our life. This is what it means to be poor in spirit. That without God's intervention, without God's grace, without his gift to us, that we are lost. We see an illustration a little bit of this and how we can get distracted and how we we can kind of move away from the sense of, of being poor in spirit. In John's great and mysterious apocalyptic vision from God, we see an example. The followers of Christ in an area called Laodicea are confused, according to this message. And so Jesus tells John to pass this message on to them. And this is the message. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. But here's this: Jesus says this: You don't realize that in fact you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Therefore, I counsel you to buy from me, Jesus is speaking here buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may keep or so that you may be rich and white robes to clothe you and to keep the shame of your nakedness from being seen and salve to anoint your eyes. Get this right. So that you may see that's what it means to be poor in spirit. You realize that the things around us, the material, the possessions are resources for us. They're not mean, they're not the end in themselves. They're means to an end. And we realize our true help, our true salvation, our true, um, Uh, substantial help in this life and life to come comes from God. So it could be that some of us here, maybe like the Laodiceans, we might have allowed sort of the the world to influence our thinking. We, We might feel like we're content. And so maybe God's spirit is asking some of us to sort of remember Right. Start this year to realize that every day we need to be thankful and grateful for God's great gift for his grace in our lives and that we lean on that. And so, by, and, and, and so we, use, we open up our resources to be used by God for his purposes. Last week, I also looked at the second of Jesus's ideas of what makes the life of his followers happy and blessed. So the second disturbed resolution for my life is hunger. Like material possessions, physical hunger, I think, can be an application of this resolution. Maybe in this case, for some here, it might be the Spirit of God is presently drawing or will draw some here throughout this year to go without food for a time. To fast. Fasting, I think, is an important discipline that counters this sort of the Laodicean misunderstanding that seeks to find our satisfaction in material things. And instead reminds us that ultimately, as followers of Jesus, our satisfaction comes from God's provision and grace. And ultimately, we will be completely satisfied only at the the wondrous completion of the kingdom of God. But in addition to physical hunger, again, Matthew provides us a little bit of insight into another way that we could be hungry this year. What does he say? He said, blessed or happy are those who hunger and thirst, remember, for righteousness, for they will be filled. And what is righteousness? Again, two things to keep in mind. First, righteousness, another way to to think about righteousness is sort of right living, being right before God, right? A right response, everything kind of around that word right, proper, Part of the grace of God, uh, righteousness is part of the grace of God that comes through Jesus. It is part of God's gift to us. The result of Jesus's perfect obedience are transferred to us as righteousness when we surrender our lives to him. Again, we look at the uh, the Old Testament in Isaiah chapter 61. We have it described for us kind of in in uh, metaphorical language. It describes the reaction of the person who receives this gift. And here we read, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My whole being shall exalt in my God, right? The response when the Holy Spirit convicts us and, and we say yes to God, right? My, I will rejoice in the Lord for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland as a bride adorns herself with jewels, right? This idea of putting on this uh, salvation, putting on righteousness, Well, what is the the garment of salvation and the robe of righteousness? Well, in the New Testament, especially Romans chapter 3, we learn that God's salvation and righteousness is not an it, but a who. Romans 3.21 states that the righteousness of God, that righteousness foretold in the prophecy of Isaiah that we just read, that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. And then later in Romans, Paul describes, uses the same kind of language that we see in Isaiah to describe this acceptance of this gift when when he tells us uh, that we are to put on or clothe ourselves with Jesus Christ. That means we accept his gift. The idea of putting on Christ is repeated throughout Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians. But the second part of righteousness is actually our response This is what we need to remember. Jesus is, uh, remember the sort of the beatitudes, these four things that we're we're considering of Jesus. And Jesus is explaining this to his disciples. He's saying, here's what it is. It's not just the fact that that I'm here to show you, but now you've got to follow. There needs to be a response. The righteousness of Christ is not just a piece of clothing, you know, to kind of continue the biblical uh, metaphor here. Not just a... A piece of clothing that is worn as an accessory. A colorful, colorful scarf or pocket square or hat that we pull out on a Sunday. Something that we use once in a while, but is otherwise safely folded up and put away in our closet. Instead, it is our entire outfit. Or even more precise in this case, in terms of righteousness, it's our entire wardrobe. It's all we have. Because righteousness is necessary to living life like Christ. It is the empowerment to follow Christ. Following Christ is mimicking him or aligning our life to his. Or to put it another way, we receive and need the righteousness of Christ to become righteous. And our response is then to live righteously. How do we find out what living righteously looks like? Well, part of God's great gift to us, sort of his whole gifting kind of family, is that he's given us his word, right? Jesus, again, is our example in this, in his temptations. He's, he's, he's tempted by the devil to kind of turn this rock into bread, but what does Jesus say? That's not as important, Man, as human beings, we don't live on bread alone. The very heart of who we are, at the very core of who we are, we don't, it's not just bread alone, but it's on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's where we get our nutrition. So it could be that God is asking some of us to make resolutions, make decisions, make promises in our life this year to become poorer and hungrier this year these things relate directly to our lives. These are Jesus's disturbed resolutions for my life. But as you know, there are two more. And as I'll quickly explain, these have strong implications for our relationships. So let's look at the final two disturbed resolutions, in this case, for my relationships. So relating to being hungry, Luke adds, blessed or happy are you who weep now, for you will laugh. And later again, he adds, Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. So what's Jesus getting at here? Because it kind of sounds, frankly, a little depressing. Right? Is Jesus advocating an existence that is in constant misery? Well, just like the matter of poverty, it helps to look at other instances in Jesus' life to gain some perspective on this. Remember that time uh, in, later on in Luke where Jesus and his disciples encounter a funeral procession? For a young man, Jesus sees the procession, sees the mother in her grief and in her mourning, and he feels compassion. Remember what he said to her in that moment? As he comes up to her, he says, do not weep. Right? So, the statements in the beatitude can mean what Jesus, that he's recommending constant misery. There are reasons to stop weeping. When God is at work or displays his glory, that gives us reason to stop weeping. Jesus is about to, to, um, uh, to present a, a miracle in the life of this woman. And so when that happens in our life, we can celebrate, we can stop weeping. When by God's spirit, we experience the joy of his salvation, we have reason then to rejoice. But there's a piece of this that does evoke a kind of misery, Misery. Remember, we're presently waiting for the kingdom to be revealed in all its glory. And for now, once in a while, we get sort of glimpses of his kingdom. Glimpses of God at work, drawing people to himself, right? So that he will be their God and we will be his people. But for now, these are only glimpses. We are waiting for something incomparably better. And when when we realize this, when we acknowledge this, we can't help but grieve. Furthermore, this sense of grief that we presently retain while we trust the joy that is kind of set before us can also be be applied to people around us who are yet to respond to the invitation to surrender their future and their life to the trustworthy grace of of God. That's the stance that Jesus took. So... Quickly, I'm going to run through this quickly. There are three reasons, or or kingdom reasons, actually, to weep. First of all is this, the longing for the kingdom. I already touched on this, so let me just say it's okay to express a deep sadness that sometimes becomes unbearable related to this time of waiting. It's okay to weep for absent loved ones while we wait to be reunited, for the pain of illness while we wait for the final and complete healing, for the challenges of life that our times get overwhelming while we wait for the rule of God to be completely revealed. It's okay to weep at our failures and our weaknesses. And we'll see the biblical affirmation in this when we get to number three. The second is this. Another reason to, another kingdom reason to weep. Those who are presently lost. Again, we can look at Jesus as an example for us here. Remember, there's a moment in, in, in Jesus' life that Luke records where he says, where Jesus is kind of getting closer to when he's going to sacrifice his life. And then he says, he kind of pauses and looks at Jerusalem and kind of feels the burden of the fact that they're not responding in the way that he longs for them to respond. He's not accepting this great gift of God through his life. He's not, they're, not, they're not trusting him in the way. And, and though the Luke doesn't kind of record him weeping, you kind of feel this, the, the effects of this kind of unrequited love, this, this love, this tremendous love Jesus is offering to people, and they're rejecting it. Even on the way to the cross, when if there ever was a time to be a little selfish and feel sorry for oneself, to lash out at others, even then Jesus instructed the people who were weeping for him to stop weeping for him, to instead weep for themselves and for their children. This is our example. This is our reminder that there are eternal consequences to our decisions. And those decisions made by our family members, neighbors, coworkers, teammates and classmates. and that is disturbing. Number three: a third reason: those who themselves are weeping. right The best illustration for this, the famous example: those of you who know uh, the life of Jesus, know that there is a moment in time when one of his close friends, Lazarus, was, became deathly ill. And Jesus knew that if he delayed, that it would result in Lazarus' death, but he delayed on purpose. But still he got there and he was so moved by the the grief and the disappointment and everything kind of surrounding this whole event that we get to that famous shortest verse in scripture where it just simply says, Jesus wept when he involved himself, but it didn't come at the beginning. It came once he got there, once he got involved in kind of the messiness, when he got involved in the grief and the awkwardness and the un- discomfort that happens when you step into life, real life with people. When you come alongside people that are hurting, that are going through tragedy, there, reason. there is reason to weep. So what about being hated? Let's skip to the... Disturbed resolution for my relationship about being hated. Once again, it's not difficult to be disturbed by this statement. Because I know I am. This is strong language, right? Jesus is not suggesting that following him, that displaying the characteristics of Christ, will be met with amusement, with indifference, or even simply with disgust. He said hatred might result. But... Before we can understand what that might mean, we need to be clear, be perfectly clear on the reason for this hatred. And Luke explains on account of the Son of Man. Quickly, the Son of Man uh, originates in the first part of the Bible in the Old Testament in one of Daniel's prophecies in chapter 7. Uh, in this, Daniel notices that God's salvation or rule will be established in someone who has the appearance of a human being, or the Son of Man. And this is the title that Jesus most often uses for himself, and it's picked up by all four of the gospel writers. So the reasons uh, revealing, sorry, that Jesus is claiming that role, the role of God's Savior. So the, re- the real reason for the world's hatred is not because we act obnoxious or unkind or impatient or belligerent or act in any other way uh, other than how Christ lived and concludes, see, the world hates Christians. No, in those cases, we're just being self-centered. Instead, our response to this, Paul exhorts us uh, through his letter to the uh, Galatian believers, is to walk by the Spirit to display, to respond in love and joy and peace and patience all the way through. This is the way. It is when this happens, when the true hatred of Christ is applied to his followers, because people are offended by Christ's claim, not our judgment, but Christ's claim on their lives, that we uh, respond this way, then we will be blessed when we are hated. So, one last time. The resolutions that emerge from Luke's Beatitudes are these four things, or could be stated. I resolve to be poorer this year. I resolve to be hungrier this year. I resolve to weep more this year. I resolve to be hated more this year. How can we take steps to reflect these states and in our own lives this year? To begin to see how the Spirit might be leading you and I. We can maybe rephrase these statements to be a little bit more proactive. So let me just conclude with uh, running through these. In the first case, the resolution to become poor might read this. This year, I resolved to be more generous, more generous with our material possessions, with our time, with our energy, to help others to see in our actions that we value the coming rule of God more than anything else, and that it is worth the wait. Is that you this year? Is that how the Spirit is asking you to respond? Well, in the case of being hungry, the resolution could be adjusted to state this. This year I resolve to eat better. Right? Two two, uh, possible interpretations of this, right? First of all, if you're here, you're online, or you're here even today, and you've never responded to the gift of Christ's righteousness for your own life, That you're not the one that has to complete and has to live perfectly because Christ has already done that. And so God's gift to us, everyone here, is to receive that. If you've never received that righteousness, that could be your resolution this year. To continue to seek and to hear and to respond to Christ's great gift. For the rest of us, it might be another option would be simply to be fed by God's word. So that you and I can understand how to live like Christ, how to be like Christ. Is this the area of your life in which God is convicting you to let him develop in 2022? In terms of weeping more this year, we might decide that this year I resolve to enter into the pain of others more. This is a reflection of God's deep desire to be with us. And Jesus' demonstration that by living among us, he did not avoid the pain and suffering of people, but came alongside people who were hurting to speak words of life to them. Who in your life could you come alongside this year? Finally, to be hated more this year, we might say something like this. This year, I resolve to keep reflecting the character of Christ, no matter how people respond. Recognizing that Jesus bears the responsibility for the world's hatred and still he died for it. In light of his example, to desire that this year we all choose to be more loving in the face of hatred. More kind in the face of cruelty. To choose to respond to others with more joy, more peace, more patience, more generosity and more self-control. It is my prayer for us as a church. For each of us, that by God's grace and empowered by the Holy Spirit, each of us have, in light of these things, a happy new year. Let's pray. Just going to pause for a moment and just allow us to respond. Part of a practice, I think, of following Jesus is that we grow in our sensitivity to the Spirit's inclinations in our lives to ask him to pause, God, what, what do you want me to do? How can I better reflect you this year? How can I follow you a little bit more closely? Maybe it's one of these four things. I'll just give you a moment to ask and to listen, to see which one he might be prompting you this year. Father, I pray for each of us, whether it was these four things or whether it's other things in our lives, God, that we would be eager to follow you, to listen to you, and to obey, to trust you a little bit more this year with our lives and with making decisions that reflect you. Father, I pray that you would give us courage to make decisions and to allow you to work on us, that we would better reflect to our community, to our world, to our workplaces to our schools, the difference that knowing Jesus makes. I pray that you would give us maybe courage to talk to somebody, to share this, to help each other, to encourage each other in this way, to follow you. Father, I thank you for these words of Jesus that were uttered so long ago and yet remain so resonant in our lives today. They're challenging, Father. These are hard things. They present us with some difficult issues that we need to face. But God, by your grace, you've given us everything we need for life and godliness, so we need to trust you. And so I pray that we will. And now, Father, as we move into a time when we are celebrating, we are remembering and we are declaring the great sacrifice of Jesus that makes all of this possible. I pray, Father, that you would help everything in our minds, everything kind of around us, whether it's the symbols of the bread and the the wine, or whether it's even my words, that everything would just fall away and that each of us as individuals, whether it's this morning or whether it's at any point during the week when they are watching this, that they will hear directly from you that you are inviting them to do this in remembrance of me. Father, guide us through the continuation of our time of worship today. In Jesus' name, amen.
0: If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.